if you could ask God for one thing and know that he would give it, what would your request be? What would you ask for? I think your answer to that question reveals a lot about your own drives and desires in life. Maybe you'd ask that God would bring back a loved one who's passed away. Uh, Maybe you'd ask for better health or a more stable bank account or maybe the salvation of a friend or family member. Or perhaps you would ask for fame, for prestige, authority, and glory. This morning we're going to consider two different scenes where people approach King Jesus and make the request known to him. Uh, We just read it. We'll see one negative example marked by pride and self-absorption, vain glory, and a positive example marked by humility and faith. So I trust your Bibles are open to Mark chapter 10. Since chapter 1 in Mark's gospel, Jesus has been a preacher marked by incredible authority. You know, he casts out demons. He heals diseases. He confounds the religious leaders of the day. He seems to be Israel's long-awaited leader. Yet in the preceding three chapters of Mark, Jesus has begun clarifying his identity. He's clarifying his own identity and his mission as the Son of Man. So while he is Israel's long-awaited hope, it's not going to be in exactly the way that those in his day thought it would appear. He is the suffering son of man, and he is calling his disciples to join in that. They are to be like their Savior, even in his suffering. Those are the themes we've seen in weeks past, and these are the themes that we see in our own passage this morning. The main idea of our passage is simply this. Jesus is Israel's long-awaited king who gives his life for the redemption of his followers. We're going to have three points this morning. I'm going to reread this first section for us, verses 32 to 34. So look there. The suffering king. That's what this point is titled. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So notice in verse 32, it says that they were going up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was, of course, significant because it was the royal city, the capital city of Israel. King David had originally conquered it, and it was known as the city of David because he ruled from it for 33 years. It was the place that the Lord had promised that the Messiah, David's offspring, would be enthroned to rule over his enemies and to save his people. It was the place where all the action would take place. And so, in our passage, as they approach the royal city, it's clear that Jesus and the disciples and the crowd, well, they all know something's going to happen. 
right? I mean, you see that where it says the disciples were amazed and the crowd afraid. Could God's promises truly be coming to pass? Were were the Romans going to be kicked out? Was Israel going to be saved? Had Jesus finally come to liberate the nation? It's probably because of the disciples' shock that for the third and final time Jesus expresses to them, he tells them what will actually take place in Jerusalem. That is, he predicts his death. He'd done this in chapter 8 and chapter 9, and now he's doing it at chapter 10. You know, it's the disciples are just like us. They need to be taught over and over again. How often do we need to be reminded? So in verse 33, you see Jesus say, we're going up to Jerusalem. Okay, that, that checks out. Everyone knows that. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. And they'll condemn him and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Friends, this is precisely not what the disciples had expected. The Messiah was expected to crush the Gentile oppressors. Not be crushed by the Gentiles. You know, he was supposed to save the Jews, save Israel. And yet here, was Israel turning on their own leader, to hand him over to their enemies? What was happening? Does this suffering invalidate Jesus' claim to be the Messiah? Well, no. No, it does not. Jesus is the Messiah. He is Israel's king. Peter was right when he said in chapter 8, you are the Christ. But instead of ruling as king from a glorious throne, which everyone expected, Jesus had come to establish his kingdom from a bloody cross. As Jesus and his followers drew closer and closer to Jerusalem, it was becoming clearer and clearer that his kingship and his kingdom and his followers were going to be quite different than what the world expected. We shouldn't overlook the fact that verse 32 mentions Jesus at the head of the crowd. Do you notice that? In the face of suffering, Jesus doesn't cower in the rear. Rather, he strides ahead, confident in his father's plan, obedient to his father's will. And brothers and sisters, Jesus is a model here for us of trusting his heavenly father, of walking in obedience, even when that obedience leads to personal suffering. You know, Jesus is not unaware of what awaits him to Jerusalem. No, he knows the suffering, but he trusts his Father. Sometimes, God's call in our lives involves sacrifice for the glory of God and for the good of others. And we should walk obediently and faithfully in that, just like Jesus did, trusting our Heavenly Father. Oh, Christian, be encouraged. If God is calling you to that in this season of your life, you are not alone. Jesus has walked that path before. Yet, is this what Jesus' disciples had signed up for? You know, when Jesus had said, follow me in those early days, when they decided to follow him, were they aware of the suffering that awaited their masters and indeed their very own lives? This brings us to our second point in verses 35 to 45, entitled The Serving King. 
Look there at verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Amen. Immediately after Jesus has explained the excruciating suffering that awaits him, that he's about to undergo, you know, how do the disciples respond? Well, James and John come and they say, hey, we have a, a special favor to ask you. And notice the audacity of their request there in verse 35. You know, they say, teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. I feel like sometimes my kids ask me that question. Whenever somebody asks you that question, you know that, that something's up, right? You know, this is bold. After learning of their Messiah's incredible humility and suffering, what were they going to ask for? Perhaps greater faith in the midst of suffering and affliction? Maybe strength and courage in the midst of persecution and opposition? Maybe joy in God in the midst of hard circumstances? Is that what they ask for? No, James, Jesus responds in verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? And we see their answer in verse 37. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. You see, James and John had their sights set on glory. They wanted the power and the fame and the fortune. And Jesus was the means to their self-serving ends. For James and John, they seem to have completely missed the point. And that's why Jesus says to them in verse 38, you don't know what you're asking. Despite all the time they had spent around Jesus, James and John remind us that it's possible to spend time around Jesus, to know some true things about him, and completely miss the boat. Friends, don't mistake proximity to Christ and to his people with an intimacy with the Savior. These brothers wanted to be glorified. They wanted to get in on the action. You know, they wanted to be vice president and secretary of state, as it were. 
But Jesus reminds them that the way to glory for the Christian, as for Christ himself, is always through suffering. There is no shortcut. Do you remember Jesus was offered a shortcut to glory and authority and kingdom? Do you remember who offered that to him? The devil. You can have all these authorities, Jesus. You can have all these kingdoms and rule, all this glory, if you worship me. Know the pattern of Christ's own life was first the cross and then the crown. That suffering is what Jesus' cup and baptism refer to in verses 38 and 39. Regularly in the Old Testament, we read of the cup of the wrath of God. So Isaiah 51, 17 states, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs of the bowl the cup of staggering. And the baptism likely refers to the wrath of God due sinners, even as God's judgment waters washed over the earth in Noah's day, even as the waters of judgment washed over Pharaoh's army as Israel was led through the Red Sea, even as Psalm 69 too says, I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. So Jesus here was alluding to and pointing forward to the suffering that he was to endure. The judgment that awaited him in Jerusalem, and that he says in verse 39, awaits his followers after him. Yeah, we should note that even as Jesus would suffer and call his own disciples to suffer, there is a difference between the suffering, right? While Jesus' suffering would atone for the sins of the whole world, Jesus' disciples' suffering would point to that suffering, would make mention of it, it would testify to Christ's death. As they humbly and joyfully took up their crosses, uh, the disciples, in fact, bore witness to a source of joy that persecution and slander and even death could not touch. And so, friends, this morning, know that if you are a Christian, you are not exempt from suffering in this world. We follow a crucified Savior. His lot is our lot. There are some false teachers on TV and the internet today who would say things like, if you come to Christ, you can expect health and wealth and prosperity. Life is going to be easy. Life is going to be good if you just have enough faith. This seems to be exactly the type of discipleship that James and John were after. But friends, if you come to Christ to get money or authority and glory, then you do not love Christ. He is not your treasure. You love those things. And he is the disposable means to your end. No, friends, we follow Christ because he is our treasure and our reward. We supremely love him. So don't be deceived. In this life, Christian, you will face suffering and persecution. But far from this error being, you know, limited to James and John, maybe they had really just misunderstood and botched the whole thing. And the ten disciples, they were sterling examples of, you know, trusting the Lord, following his will. We see that's not actually the case. Look at verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant 
at James and John. You guys, they were jealous that James and John beat them to the punch. They wanted to ask Jesus that question. They wanted the glory. And so Jesus calls them all together. And then in verse 42, he says, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Seven Mile Road, in this short section, we see the surprising nature of Christian leadership and Christian discipleship, more generally. We see the countercultural values of the kingdom of God. You know, in the world's eyes, to be a leader is to have authority and to use that authority to exalt yourself to the subjection of others. Uh, this demonstrates your prowess and ability and authority. You magnify your own name. The Gentiles consider this greatness. But it shall not be so among you, Jesus says. Among Jesus' disciples, the humble are praised. The lowly are rewarded. The servant-hearted ones receive their commendation from the Lord. So notice that Jesus does not stop his followers from pursuing greatness. Do you see that? He doesn't say, stop trying to be great. He redefines greatness. Greatness among the Gentiles is self-exaltation. But greatness among the people of God is selfless service of others. So Jesus says, whoever would be great must be your servant, and whoever would be first must be slave. Brothers and sisters, do you want to be great? I hope the answer to that question is yes. And I hope you pursue that greatness in the way Jesus commends. Serve others. Look for ways to bless those around you in small but practical ways. In your family, at work, in church. Look for ways to encourage others spiritually perhaps by writing notes or mentoring a younger believer. Sacrificially, give of your time, perhaps arriving early to help set up or greet newcomers. Pray diligently for others. You know, they're never going to know if you're getting up at 6 a.m. to pray for them. Oh, but what a way to serve others, to love them. In most of these ways, there won't be any public approval or accolade. But that's kind of the point, isn't it? In all these ways, as you selflessly serve others, you exemplify true greatness. And so don't believe the lie that greatness is to be found on social media or approval and accolades in the papers. You know, if, if we want greatness according to the world standards, our flesh will tell us exactly what to do. You know, it comes so natural to us, doesn't it? To exalt ourselves. You don't need a class on that. You don't need to hear a sermon, how to exalt yourself. We do it all. We do it naturally. Oh no, even apostles like James and John are prone to this kind of thinking. 
And yet Christ calls us to pursue greatness in service, in love of others, to die to selfish desires, put others first, and put ourselves last. And so you may be thinking, okay, Scott, this is, you know, it's a rainy day. We had a tough year and a half. Man, you're really laying it on. This is hard. So how does Jesus motivate his followers? Look at verse 45. You see the first word there? For. This first word is so important because Jesus is giving the ground. Is it for? All right, good. I just want to make sure we have the same translation. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You should be last. You should be a slave. You should serve others because even the Son of Man served. The Lord Jesus Christ, the first and the greatest, who deserved to be served and to rule, to lord it over others. Yet even he came, this king, to serve us. You know, this act of Christ, this humility, the Son of Man coming to serve, it is the greatest act of humility that can be conceived of. God is an infinitely great God, Therefore, Christ's coming low was an infinitely great humility. As Paul says in Philippians 2, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If anyone had the right to be served, it was the Lord Jesus Christ. And thus, if he served, you know, what excuse do we have? Are you tempted to think that you are too important to serve others? Praise God, Jesus didn't think that way. Where would we be if he did? Beloved, what a wonderful example we have in Christ of serving others. When pride tells us that we are too important to serve in small and humble ways, let us remember Christ and his example. Yet yet how specifically does he serve us? Well, Jesus says there at the end of the verse, he came, he served, by giving his life as a ransom for many. So notice that Jesus served not merely by becoming incarnate. The eternal son of God added to himself a human nature. He became a person. He became a carpenter. That's amazing. But that's not the pinnacle and height of his service. No, that is found when what happens? He gives his life as a ransom for many. That is, that means Jesus paid the price for our freedom from bondage. Okay, so a ransom is the price that you pay to free someone from bondage or slavery when you'd buy them back, perhaps as a captive. And so if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, know that it required the death of the Son of God 
to purchase your freedom from sin and Satan and death. The judgment of God is off of you because Christ paid your ransom. He gave his life for you. That Greek word, the word for, uh, ransom for many, it's really emphatic. It means instead of or in the place of. Jesus died so that we who trust in him do not have to bear the wrath of God. Because friends, either you will pay for your sins or Christ will have paid for them. Either you will bear your punishment or Christ will bear it for you. And so if you're here this morning and you're a non-Christian, you wouldn't identify as a follower of Jesus. This is why it's so urgent that you trust in Christ. Because only in Christ is your ransom paid. He is the only one who can offer his life for your life. Friends, we have all incurred a debt because of our sin. Yet Jesus is the innocent lamb of God who bears the wrath of God in the place of all those who would trust in him. That is why they're headed to Jerusalem. That is the victory that he is going to win as Israel's king. Three days later, as proof that he was indeed establishing his kingdom and offering pardon, freedom through his death, three days later, the father raised him from the dead so that you this morning, if you're not a Christian, if you but trust in Christ, you will be saved from your sins. If you will but follow him, trusting in his grace, you will receive entrance into his eternal kingdom. And so in light of Christ's great sacrifice, how should we respond? We come now to our third section in verses 46 to 52, entitled, The Coming King. If James and John responded to the truth of Jesus' kingly identity with, with pride and selfish ambition and greed, here we see the opposite. Holy ambition and humble discipleship. So read with me, beginning in verse 46. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up. He's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Friends, Bartimaeus is a lot like the little children in previous chapters of Mark. Low on the social totem pole and outcast from society. You know, he was distinctly not great according to the world's standards. Yet when he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, 
Verse 47 says he began to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Friends, do you see what is happening? Here we encounter another startling reversal. A blind man here sees the truth about who Jesus is in a way that everyone else was blind to. While Jesus' disciples and the crowds had the the benefit of literally seeing all that Jesus did, you know, Bartimaeus would have only heard the reports of who Jesus is and the miracles he had accomplished. And despite opposition from the crowd, he continues to cry out in verse 48, Son of David, have mercy on me. And this language is so startling because of how unprecedented it is in Mark's gospel. Jesus typically refers to himself as the Son of Man, you know, and when other people refer to him, they'll typically say something like teacher. We saw that James and John, they said teacher. It's only once in Peter's confession that you are the Christ have we seen the office of king explicitly applied to Jesus by another person. And yet, this blind beggar turns out to be the most enlightened out of any of the characters in Mark's gospel. And that's just the way God loves to work, isn't it? He uses the weak and lowly things of this world to shame the proud. Friend, do you find yourself like Bartimaeus this morning? Oh, God delights to show mercy to the lowly. When Bartimaeus says, son of David, he's clearly referring to the promises that that God had made to David in 2 Samuel 7. There Yahweh said to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so in Jesus, Bartimaeus recognizes that these promises were finally coming true. If you know your Old Testament, the, after David, it's a litany of bad kings, bad sons of David, and bad things happen when you have bad kings. And so Bartimaeus is saying, now David's son is going to David's city to take David's throne. God's people would finally be rescued from their enemies, united and restored under his gracious reign. All this was coming true as Jesus embarked to Jerusalem. And the irony is, it took a blind man to see it. And so Jesus calls the man to get up from beside the road to come over. You know, I love the man's reaction in verse 50. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Yeah, but this man's blind. He's getting up like he knows what, where he's going and what he's, he's throwing off his cloak, jumping up, going to Jesus. Leaps with joy. And then, how does Jesus respond? Look there in verse 51. What does Jesus say to the blind man? And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? Friends, does that question sound familiar to you? It is the exact same question 
that Jesus had asked James and John. What do you want me to do for you? The exact same question. And while their answer was marked by pride and self-promotion, Bartimaeus answers here with humble faith. Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Though blind, this man perceived Jesus' true identity as the suffering, saving son of man, King David's offspring. And so as we conclude, Bartimaeus return, receives his sight. L- look at that last sentence there in verse 52. Jesus heals him. He says, go your way. Verse 52, and immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Friends, here we see the crucial difference between Bartimaeus and the sons of Zebedee. Notice that both went to Jesus, both wanted something from Jesus, but what makes James and John's request a vice and Bartimaeus' request virtuous? It is that James and John were simply using Jesus for their own ends, for their own glory, their own power, and their own prestige. But Bartimaeus here, Jesus was not only the means, but the end. Not only did he want Jesus to do something for him by healing him, he wanted Jesus to heal him so that he could follow him on the way. Though Jesus said, go your way, Bartimaeus doesn't go his way. He goes Jesus' way. You know, it's really hard to follow your king on a journey to Jerusalem if you're a blind beggar. And so Bartimaeus is saying, to follow you on the way to Jerusalem, let me see that I could get up off the roadside and follow you. Bartimaeus wasn't just in it for the healing. He wasn't simply looking forward to improved health or a more comfortable standard of living. He longed to follow Christ. That's why he wanted his sight back. And so, brothers and sisters, what do your prayers reveal about your priorities and desires? Do you seek blessing from God fundamentally for your own comfort or so that you might follow Christ more faithfully? James and John wanted to use Jesus for their own ends. But Bartimaeus, he sought blessing that he might be a more faithful and useful and committed follower. Though chastised and even persecuted by those around him, Bartimaeus cried out to his king for mercy and began to follow Christ. Have you? Let's pray.